This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer, Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 82, this one being our third video cast. Uh, we're recording on November 19th, 2020, the illustrious year. And today we have uh, both a, a guest and a person. The person who's our guest is also going to be our new co-host. So Brenda Weigel, thank you for joining me today, Brenda. My pleasure, Tim. And it is really an honor to be here. And uh Moving forward, a tremendous honor to serve as co-host with you uh, for the upcoming podcast. Yeah, I think it's going to be great fun. So as our audience probably knows, you're the director of the Division of Peds Hemock at the University of Minnesota and, and the director of the uh, Pediatric Early Phase Clinical Trial Network, which is the new name of the former COG Phase 1 group. Uh, and so you have quite an expertise in new drug development. And actually, you appeared on our audio podcast a few years ago, 2017, episode 65. So everybody, anybody that wants to go back and listen to that on the Solving Kids Cancer website, go for it. Um, I wasn't there that day. I happened to be out of town. My apologies again. But uh, my colleagues uh, did a nice conversation with you. I went back and listened to it. And you guys talked a lot about drug delivery, um, how to access new drugs, breaking barriers down between industry and academia, addressing pediatric cancer as an orphan disease, and sort of some of those limitations, um, and how to prioritize and uh, the, 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 what you called the rich landscape of possibilities, and also talked a little bit about measuring quality of life and, and that sort of thing. So I think you ended the podcast on quite an upbeat note in terms of, hey, there's a lot going on in our field. Uh, there's uh, new ways we're thinking about it. We know that a lot of the barriers and they're beginning to be broken down. So I kind of wanted to extend that conversation and go a lot deeper since you're now much more, even more seasoned than you were then and have a lot more experience. And since then, one of the big uh, events, I guess, in, in pediatric oncology drug development is the Race for a Cure Act. So I kind of wanted to start talking about that and what your experience with, with, that, with that is. And maybe you could begin by explaining it to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the Race for Children Act uh, is really um, a modification of the um, federal uh, guidance around uh, investigating drugs for children. And it's specific to drugs for cancer. And the RACE Act really requires that if a target is considered of potential relevance to a childhood cancer, a, there needs to be an investigation of that agent in pediatrics. And so there was quite a bit of work done to define actual targets of relevance. And um, that it, it moves us from being sort of saying, we're gonna study something in breast cancer only and a drug company can have an exclusion if they're saying we're only developing a drug for breast cancer. 
but it's very different if you say we're developing a drug for a marker that is seen in breast cancer or a pathway that's seen in breast cancer that's also seen in pediatric cancers. And so it really has opened the landscape for um, multiple drugs that are now will need to have an investigation in, in, in pediatrics. Um, and it really has, it came into effect in August of this year, in um, August of 2020. And what it is requiring is also the um, development of much earlier of pediatric uh, friendly formulations so that we can administer drugs to children, but it is requiring companies to both look at preclinical work in um, models that are relevant to childhood cancer, that then if there is a signal there in a pediatric cancer, it really moves the development from where companies used to wait till they had really developed their drugs in adult cancers through what the phase one, so through the safety testing into phase two, where typically companies would wait to see if a drug was actually going to be successful in a particular adult cancer before they would start in children. And the average time that um, there's a delay is right now in that previous landscape of six and a half years between when a drug is first tested in an adult and then when it is first tested in, in pediatrics. Our hope is that this Race for Children Act will move the bar considerably closer to once there's a dose, a safe dose determined in adults uh, that we can move into children. And potentially, even if we feel that the tumor is or the cancer is unique to children, that we could end up in a situation of testing for first in human in children, which would be a remarkable, a remarkable feat. That would be. It's great to hear that at least one good thing happened during 2020. <laughs> <laughs> so have you seen any of the in your interactions or or and and you serve on the FDA ODAC committee, uh, pediatric subcommittee, I think. Have you seen any drugs come through or companies come through where they're um, really taking that to heart and, and working on uh, that's that, you know, their pediatric plan, et cetera? Absolutely. Um, I would say this, the last um, 18 months has been sort of an explosion for us of trying to really work with the pharmaceutical industry, the biotech industry to help them navigate some of this and also navigate the, the preclinical space. So there's been a lot of work done by many, many people and a lot of wonderful collaborations between industry, academia, and, um, and federal um, government to actually say, here's a platform we need to look at for preclinical. And there's multiple avenues being developed for that so that companies can try to make a decision about what to move forward. What is really challenging, and I think one of the things that has really come to heart is that um, there's very there's very few exclusions to to pathways of relevance in pediatric cancer. Um, so really, the onus is on saying it's not relevant rather than that it's relevant. And I think that's really hard because there are very few things where we can say, you know, we really truly don't think it's important. The other challenge is, is that for a lot of our pediatric um, cancers, we don't actually have really good model systems. We, we, I think they're being developed and developed quickly. 
Um, but I think it, and it is yet to be seen how, how much that preclinical um, signal translates into an actual clinical trial signal. Um, I think we still don't know that. There are very few examples where we have seen, um, you know, that have really gone from showing a really strong signal before you get into the clinic to really showing a strong signal in the clinic. So I, I think that um, we really have seen that. We're seeing an awful lot of drugs. And then what one of the other real challenges is, is if you're looking at some, um, it, a, a pathway or target that is rare, there are very few patients. And so what it really does is it gets us into thinking about how do we design trials to do this? How do we design trials with the fewest number of patients or how do we design international studies? And so I think it really begs the question of collaboration. It really begs the question of really working together because we're, we're only gonna be able still to do so many trials with the number of, of children we have and, and trying to really creatively think about how we design some of these trials I think is really important. So with uh, along those lines, I know in a, in a lot of adult studies, there's a whole different set of trial designs nowadays. And are we looking at incorporating those sort of strategies into pediatric trials like master and uh, master protocols and basket designs and uh, adaptive platform designs and umbrella trials, things like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that is exactly where certainly some companies for their pediatric drug development are, are very much looking at master protocols, um, where a company may have several drugs that they feel they will need to test and come up with what they think is a master protocol to enroll children into. Um, I think that is um, something that we really are looking at. We also um, are very much considering more um, modified designs or more adaptive designs. I think we really have to start moving into the world of where in adults you can make um, decisions on much, many fewer patients um, and use for some of these targeted agents, you're looking for um, what we call a large effect size. You want to pick a winner. You want a drug that's actually, if it hits the target, it works. And so I think one of the opportunities is it allows us to make decisions on fewer patients faster if you if you have sort of a, a bar of success that you're looking for. So I definitely think that that's something that we need to consider. Um, and I think some of these um, drugs, also a major challenge is they may work best in combination or combinations of different targeted agents or combinations of immunotherapies. And that adds a whole other layer to trying to investigate some of these um, in, in our current landscape. So do you think the three plus the three by three design is, is sort of out the window or is that still kind of going to be embedded within all these? Yeah. So truth be told, I, I, we rarely use a three plus three design anymore. Um, we have typically gone to a rolling six. I think the the other thing that I would say is very limited dose, what I would I call dose finding, is for a lot of these drugs, we 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 think based on mechanism of action and toxicity that we can start potentially at the adult recommended dose 
or just below it um, and really use pharmacokinetics to ensure that we are getting this getting similar exposures um, at, or, or, or correlative biology to assure that we're hitting the targets and really limit dose findings. So I think the days of kind of the old three plus three design where you would have five or six dose levels, I think those studies are really um, not going to be sort of things for us moving forward. I think sort of more of the limited dose finding and then quickly moving into um, a modified phase two design that really waits for the first stage, the response much higher um, are gonna be, I think, designs also to move forward. So it sounds like rather than the old days where you just sort of had a drug and you tried different doses, we need a triad, triad of uh, sort of a package of three things, the drug itself, PK assays and uh, biomarkers to really do this rationally, is that right? Yeah, and I think I think it, the biomarker development, I think is probably a little bit more behind, but I think depending on the drug, but I think it will become increasingly important to say that if you really are developing a targeted therapy, how do we know that we're hitting the target? And, and in the early phase studies, those may be incorporated, or if there is already, a well-known biomarker that we're selecting patients based on that biomarker to enter the study so that they have the greatest chance for potential benefit um, of, that, of that targeted agent. So, so yes, the development of these sort of companion biomarkers, I think is something moving forward that is critical. I think it's also critical in the pediatric space that they're biomarkers that we can actually implement. So an, an additional challenge in that space for pediatrics is um, when you're talking about if, if it's a, a blood-based um, test is what volume of blood do you need? Um, and also if it's a tumor-based test, the, it, can it be done on already uh, obtain tumor tissue because doing um, bi bi biopsies is, is not as easy in children. And I would argue it's not as easy in adults anymore either um, to, do, to do biopsies that are not treatment related. Um, but I think that is one of the other additional challenges um, that we're facing, but is critical to really moving the best agents forward. One thing I envision with that or a challenge is that every company's got their own drug and their own biomarker assay and uh, you have to get your scent to them or them or them or over there or over there. It almost sounds like we're going to need a clearinghouse where you, each patient could, you know, you could send a patient's blood or, or tumor to one place that could sort of test the whole landscape of biomarkers that are out there and then be able to identify, oh, this, this is good for that drug and that drug and that drug. Mm -hmm. that sounds so, like something so that actually so that actually i think um absolutely would be the way of, of the future and that is actually the paradigm for um what is um the uh for leukemia being set up as as what's called the pedal project is that they're looking at a centralized system to really look at all of the tumor tissue um that will be um, a leukemia tumor tissue, um, and then actually having a list of clinical trials or list of agents that that person could be potentially um, uh, 
eligible for. That is that actual effort is being supported by the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, the NCI, and there's also um, a European branch um, called uh, UPAL that is really partnering. So it's an international effort with exactly that paradigm in mind that there's a central repository for this type of, of data. It is similar to, but I think expands well on the um, pediatric match type of idea where it, that really, that study really successfully met its mark by saying we have a central molecular profiling of these patients and, and found it to be feasible. Um, but I think the challenge is, is that a lot of our biomarkers are may be incorporated in that genomic assay, but it may be other types of biomarkers that are critical to determining whether someone's eligible for a study. So it may be a surface marker. It may be some other type of um, way that you have to assay the tumor or the blood to determine that marker. So I think that's one mechanism. And the more inclusive, I think, as you allude to, we can be, I think, the better. I think we're a long way from having a centralized way to do that, um, but I think that would be the ideal. We have to have pipe dreams and Absolutely. aspirational goals. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. How Absolutely. does this, this sort of whole new landscape or whole new approach influence or affect the COG phase one network or the, what's now the PEP-CTN and, and why? what prompted this sort of change from the original COG phase one network to this PEP? CTN, what's the difference and so forth? What are the differences? So there's a, there's a couple differences between um, the what started now almost 20 years ago uh, as the, the Children's Oncology Group Phase 1 and Pilot Consortium. Um, and that, that has been maintained um, as 21 sites um, within um, COG sites. The sites have, you know, there's been comings and goings over the years, but those core 21 sites are the same. So one of the key aspects of it is, is that the 21 sites are the same. A, a big difference is um, that they, um, that there is required um, to the point we were just talking about required biology. So we previously, it, this has really been, for us, the requirement for banking is so that we can collect samples, analyze the samples, and be able to correlate um, any ch changes in the tumors with response. So there's a much bigger push towards that correlative biology. Another requirement that um, is new to the, um, there's two other additional requirements. One is um, we have always had to do pharmacokinetics. So that is, but the other new piece um, is actually the incorporation of um, quality of life assessments. And we're really working hard to um, now uh, look at how we can not just look at side effects, but look at, that are reported by the physicians, but side effects that are reported by the patients and their families, because that is in the coming years, something that the regulatory authorities, the FDA are going to be looking at and has actually come into play for some adult 
trials in looking at what are called patient reported outcomes and quality of life. So that actually is one of the, the new elements of the PEPCTN that we're working uh, to try to address. The other is expanding the network. So to coming back to the concept of this phase one, two type of seamless um, study design and allowing us to hopefully more efficiently and effectively um, accrue patients, especially in rare tumors. Um, the network, we are expanding it to um, include 20 additional sites so that we can have the expertise in pharmacokinetics, the expertise in um, tumor assessments um, and expand that more broadly um, to really implement sort of the phase one, two design. Oh, that's great. It sounds like uh, it's continuing to evolve and, and, and maybe even through quantum leaps. So this seems like a really nice expansion and uh, in, increased in expertise. Uh, I guess you, you mentioned uh, international before. So what about expanding beyond sort of the current COG well, I guess some of this expansion will be in other countries, I assume, because COG is international, but I kind of wanted to transition to discussing the international collaborations and the challenges, and especially in the phase one arena, what you're seeing um, in that landscape. Yeah, so it's a great question. So I think um, there, there is really a need for international collaboration. And and to your point, um, the... Um, for the additional expansion sites, yes, um, uh, sites certainly could apply from um, our international uh, colleagues being Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Um, but when I'm talking international, I'm talking Europe, I'm talking Asia, I'm talking much broader than that, South America, you know, China, India, yeah. So I think there are real challenges there. One of the things that we are definitely seeing is partnerships directly with industry that where studies are fully supported by our industry partners so that they can much more easily uh, incorporate um, international collaborations. Having said that, um, I think the cooperative groups the NCI recognized that we need the ability to partner. And there certainly have been successful partnerships. Those have been much more at the later phases, to be honest. Early phase is a little bit more challenging um, due to the oversight required and regulatory requirements. One of the real challenges um, are some of the regulatory requirements, especially for early phase studies with different requirements in different countries. And so I think there are some hurdles that we need to overcome that are beyond um, things we can control. Um, I also very much think there are now international platforms where there's a lot of discussion about doing parallel trials. So a, a very good example of that, we opened a trial within COG Developmental Therapeutics for a very rare leukemia uh, and with a targeted drug. And the exact same study is being run in Europe through the ITCC um, and, and, and the company ultimately will take the two databases and merge them. But, but we worked very 
closely and collaboratively to ensure that our eligibility criteria were exactly the same, the protocols are identical, the, and, and mo most importantly, we mirrored the data that's being collected in both studies, but they're being run as two studies for the reason of, of ease and it would and and then ultimately um, the the company will have a much better way to enroll ve a very rare patient population without us having to actually do a single study. So the, I think there are some creative ways also to look at it that um, we can leverage um, the the infrastructures that exist while we work to I think collaboratively come up with better strategies um, that will be more global. Well, a lot of companies are certainly used to doing that, right? Major companies run the same trial in, like in, in multiple, like the COVID vaccine trials, for example. Uh, so what about, uh, that seems like good workaround for industry sponsored studies, but for investigator initiated studies, maybe not so easy. Um, are there strategies to enhance those kinds of collaborations across yeah. the country? And, and so that example I gave you with the leukemia was actually, that's, that's investigator. That's, um, so that, that is considered an investigator one that went through with um, our NCI support, et cetera, through the, the COG. I think it is, um, there are mechanisms, parallel mechanisms, but they are very challenging outside. Um, there are some exceptions through the NCI through the cooperative group mechanisms to add international sites. And there are ways to do that. Um, it is not routinely done, um, but it has been done for certain, um, certain drugs and certain projects. Um, so I think there are ways to, to look at it and to be creative. I think as we move into having smaller and smaller populations, we're gonna have to have a way to do that. And I think by, also increasing networks um, and the children's oncology group in increasing um, and working to add Asian sites, working to add sites um, in, in other parts of the world, I think will we'll actually also facilitate some of that type of more global work. Yeah, I think if COG and SIOP can work together and other, other European and, and other uh, cooperative groups uh, to address this rare, disease kind of issue that would be key. Our, yeah. um, this team at Solving Kids Cancer had, had mentioned that you were on an FDA Office of Pediatric Therapeutics and have these monthly pediatric cluster teleconferences, I think they called it. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us about that? And do those, are those, is the international part of those discussions or not? Yeah, so I can, um, certainly the, um, the, what are called the cluster calls, those are actually calls that um, the FDA uh, in concert with the European regulatory author authorities, the EMA have with companies um, when they put in a, a drug for consideration um, at, or review for both regulatory agencies. The FDA and actually the EMA, they actually are working very closely um, together they're, they're, they work under different regulatory guidances and different regulatory um, landscape, but they're very much trying to work with companies in a very confidential way to try to get similar 
um, feedback from both. Now it's not exactly the same, but I think it's going an awfully long way to helping companies say, this is what I need to move my drug forward in pediatrics, both in Europe and in North America. And, and we are not privy to those uh, calls. That's something that's a, a private um, call between the company and the, the regulatory authorities. But I do know that those are incredibly important and um, have been, um, I think, instrumental in trying to minimize, um, I think, differences across, across North America and Europe uh, to move a drug forward. Um, so, and also the other thing I think is, is very important about that is, is leveraging potentially different trials in different parts of the world. So if so, one of, I think, a very important thing about these international types of collaborations that are facilitated is the ability to say in this part, in this study, in this part of the world, we're going to study, you know, this question. In this part, we're going to study this. And you can then look at different um, patient populations, different combinations, different strategies. And I think that is also incredibly important. So we're almost out of time. Uh, so we'll uh, end with sort of a final question. What are you most excited about over the next three to five years? Oh, guys, a COVID vaccine. Yeah, I was going to say other than other than a COVID vaccine. Um, I actually think and, and where we started was with the sort of Race for Children Act and the real shifting of emphasis to moving drugs earlier for study in pediatric cancer and and the real excitement that um, some of these drugs really do have the potential. Um, some of these drugs and agents um, have real potential for on-target effects that could change the landscape of pediatric cancer. And I think we've seen that with a few drugs that have already moved very quickly in the pediatric landscape. And I think the real opportunity is for us to be streamlined and collaborative to in essence, try to fast track um, the most promising agents. And I think that's the real challenge, but it's also the really exciting part and the real huge opportunity. And then secondarily to that, I think one of the real exciting opportunities is also considering how these new drugs may actually change the long-term effects for, for pediatric cancer survivors with minimizing, effect, minimizing late effects and ultimately improving quality of life while maintaining outstanding cure rates. And so I think to me, that's one of the most exciting things is a lot of these newer approaches will allow us ultimately to start asking questions for improving overall quality of life and long-term survivorship for, for children with cancer. That's great. Well, it gives us all hope to know that we're not just advancing the biology, but we're advancing the infrastructure, the workflow, the of breaking down the barriers and figuring out how to do things more efficiently and, and better uh, in this sort of new era. And uh, thank you for, for doing all that work that you're doing and pushing the field forward and managing all these uh, balls in the air and in new drug development. And thanks for being here today as a guest and in the future as a co-host. Appreciate it. 
Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening and watching to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twibbo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsonkdoc and find all Twibbo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.